This is Joe Cole, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, the London is Blue podcast. Dan, one of your hosts here. No Brandon, no Nick, but the wonderful, the amazing, the ever-detailed, the author of the London is Blue Dispatch, Sam, CFC Central, back, bringing you, and all of us really, an update on the first three matches under Mauricio Pochettino, what the aura is, what the vibe is of what we're seeing on the pitch, trying to pull together some trends. And I think there was even the question, Sam, could we identify trends over three matches? I would say there's enough data but you might disagree. So, like, is it is it a trend or is it more just a a leading indicator that we're about to talk about today? Uh, hey, Dan. I mean, uh, absolutely amazing and buzz, buzzing to be back on the podcast after a little bit of a hiatus. But I uh, hope everybody's enjoying the, the dispatches and it's been good to get back to writing. It's something that I enjoy more than uh, listening to my voice back on the podcast. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I think we've got a slight indicator of where Pochettino's reign is going to go. I wouldn't really count on the system too much, but in terms of how he's improved the players, how each individual is looking, I think we've got a, a good sense of how things might go over the season. And I would I would dare say that I'm optimistic. So uh, I'm I'm really hoping that everybody else listening in sort of shares that optimism with me. And you're generally optimistic. So I feel like for you to say that you're optimistic, that might be even a double down on the level of optimism we might and should have around what Chelsea could accomplish this season. No, I'm definitely a glass always full kind of person. So yeah, it's just been I've been I've been trying to pick out the best kind of things that are that are available to me and and it is encouraging. I think um, based on when we were together in in the US and we were watching preseason, you could already see that the foundations were being laid. And that has luckily, and I would say thankfully, just continued into the new season. Some tenets in terms of just how well he's profiling certain players, not just the ones that were there in preseason, but the ones who've come in also. It just looks like the manager is very switched on in terms of the tools at his disposal and and how he wants to use them. So he's not taking an axe and using it to peel potatoes, which is very encouraging. Well, we will leave the culinary or woodcutting situations to the side for now, but we will advance into a conversation, taking a look at the first three matches in a bit of a high-level overview. And then we want to talk about just some of the larger patterns or trends we're seeing that are coming from your listener questions. So as always, we love when you engage with us on x on instagram when you can send us in questions but we also have other ways that you can engage and support the podcast as well leaving a five-star review is always appreciated whether it's on apple spotify or any app that allows you to leave a review also you can join our wonderful patreon community it's part of our uh, with discord that's patreon.com forward slash lonely blue pod and hey jump onto youtube subscribe it's free Get notified when we drop a new video or new pod. That's also free. And leave a comment over there. Also something free that you can do that helps support the podcast. And we really appreciate it. We're getting very, very close to 30,000 subscribers over there. We'd love to hit that as a milestone. It's been a big month for us, particularly with all of the pods we've been dropping. You know, we had our Luton review. We had a Petrovic special. We had Phil Chelsea Youth back on recently to talk about what's going on in the academy. There's just a whole lot more that we are coming out with in the next few days, too particularly as we get close to the end of the transfer window. So please, please, please engage with us. Let us know what's going on. Let us know what you like so we can continue creating a great show for you. But as we get into it, Sam, as we talk about the stage that we are setting, Chelsea have three results. They have a win, they have a loss, and they have a draw, which, if you argue, Luton, West Ham, Liverpool... It almost feels like it might have been expected that Chelsea would end up with a 1-1-1 record over the first three matches, particularly with a late, multiple late arrivals into the team, an incomplete squad, a short-ish preseason for Pochettino to get all of his ideas across the team, and maybe some of the other squads we went up against being more complete or more ready to start their Premier League campaign with having the same manager, having a lot of the same players, having a system in place. We might argue that maybe the results are a little different. Maybe we would have 
lost to Liverpool or drawn with West Ham and then beaten Luton. I think Luton was the one everybody had penciled in as a win. And so just maybe before we get into some of the specifics in those matches, just generally, is this where you would expect us to be? Or do you feel like we are at the expectation, above the expectation, or below the expectation where you thought we might be based upon preseason? Well, for other perennial optimists, I will splash a little water and go and say that I think we're slightly below expectations. I, I do believe that um, obviously injuries have, have affected what we've been able to put out in terms of the plan that was there in preseason versus the execution. But I do believe that we should have won the West Ham game. I do believe that uh, we should have done better in the Liverpool game. Uh, we, we did really, really well to come back from a goal down and and by the end of it, Klopp was reeling, didn't know what to do. But I think that we could have we could have achieved more. And I think it's a very good feeling that I, of all people, is sort of um, advocating towards that because I'm generally more sanguine. I'll say, okay, give it more time. But it did feel like Poch has created a team that's able to compete physically and, and in terms of intensity and even excel compared to some very good teams which is extremely encouraging for us going forward. But I do think that we should have had at least two wins and maybe one draw going ahead. But uh, like you said, a 1-1-1 is probably in hindsight, you know, a fairer reflection of where we should be. But um, I would say that going forward again, especially the fixtures that we have, force is not going to be easy. But uh, hopefully we will be able to convert those slight margins and and turn towards victory. So I'm, I'm being a little more on the harsher side where I expect this squad, this young squad, which is physically drilled and looks much better than its competitors to actually convert those into good results. Yeah, it's interesting you say that as we get into maybe the more specifics of each of the match. You know, we know that uh, in the Liverpool match in particular that we hadn't gotten Caicedo across the line yet that was still uh, about to be done and fully resolved in the Caicedo derby, the Lavia derby, however you want to frame it. You know, Chelsea won off the pitch, even if we couldn't get a win in terms of the result on the pitch. But that was where we saw the first little bit of makeshift action happening from Pochettino with the inavailability of some of the players. We know that Nkunku was ruled out a little bit before that in terms of the injury that he had, which was a massive bummer considering how exciting, how electric he looked during preseason. And Pochettino went with that 4-2-3-1 that everybody thought was the the three back three. But obviously, maybe we could just talk about that in terms of a you know, I think we got asked the question a couple of times is, is it truly a back three that Chelsea are playing? Pochettino said, no, it's a back four. I think we tend to say it's a back four, but maybe we can just enumerate a little bit around like why it is the way it is and why why does the Premier League continue or why does Sofa score continue putting three back on the the you know the way that they generate their lineups? So interestingly, Poch himself clarified this. And uh, I think it was an interview with the club website where he said that we want to basically, when we're attacking, uh, we want to have three at the back. So we make sure that we've got um, an extra man and make sure that we're sorted on transitions. So uh, it is actually a back four. It's just uh, we're practicing different shapes. Um, and, And even through within the different courses of the game. We've also seen us become more adventurous. So we've gone from what you might think is a 3-5, 3 to a 3-1-4-2. And we've switched it up. We've got two forwards sometimes. We've uh, basically got only one DM. If you watch the Luton game back, at one point in time, Kaisero was there in, in defensive midfield by himself with the three centre-backs behind him. This happened against the West Ham game uh, as well, where... Unfortunately, it cost us because we were trying to push for a goal and West Ham just stood back, made sure that they were capitalizing on transitions. But um, the back three is not a back three, to be honest. It is a back four. Colville is a left back. Uh, he's also a center back. It, it's pretty similar to what Graham Porter did in, in his couple of first couple of games. I think it was against Salzburg that he played Kukurea in, in that role. But 
Those ideas are quite different. The execution is quite different, but it's definitely a backbow, I would say. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up for everybody. I think that's very important. But you know, let's talk about some of the things from that game, just at a high, you know a high level that we saw that maybe continued in the future games. We know we saw the space that Chilwell was creating for Enzo. We saw some progression out of the back, and particularly with the passers that. Chelsea have from a center back offering can do a lot more than maybe some other teams in the Premier League it feels like we saw how the defenders were going to be critical to the point you made there around Poch clarifying the three at the back when we're in attack is it's really about how the defenders are setting up the defenders to actually kickstart or be involved in the attacking phase of the game just as much as they are in making sure that the defense is staying rock solid. No, definitely. I think what people have to sort of um, switch on to here is not just see as, you know, a left winger position as a position. Like you wouldn't want to see it as an attacker playing there, but uh, there are certain responsibilities that are required even from your left finger, which um, first of all that you mentioned was to create space for Enzo. So if you watch the Luton game back, there were moments where Chilwell was basically moving right next to Jack centre-backs and uh, draw the full-back who was marking Chilwell inside. So, uh, so far, so not so far, the Luton right-back was basically trying to to get a little scrunched up and it basically pinned the back line to a point where the left pocket, that that half space uh, on on the left hand side for us was where Enzo was dropping, and and those are the angles that he loves the most. That's because Chilwell was moving away from that zone, away from the left wing position, and actually shunting inside, trying to squeeze the line and making sure that your most creative player on the pitch had time to receive, time to put his head up, and basically pick the passes that he wanted. And most of it was Sterling trying to make a far post run. So. The space that is being created for Enzo is thanks to Jilwell. And those are the tactical things we talk about. Can Mudrik do that? Or is he somebody who's just waiting for the ball to come to him and then trying to take on people? How does that look when West Ham are playing in a in a 5-4-1? Is he able to go past, you know, a full back, two center backs and, and create some kind of a threat? Probably no. And that's why, you know, we saw um, definitely Chilwell come in and offer a little more tactical um interpretation to it he he actually did some really really good things he was a very good off the ball threat he was making runs in behind so far and at one point he got two headers on on the far post and one went very narrowly wide from a from a cross i think it was gusto or it was enzo on the right hand side who picked him out and he almost scored from there so um he is doing the right things it's just this formation is is more dependent on players doing certain responsibilities and and we don't have to look at it as why is a centre-back playing left-back or why is a left-back playing left-wing. It's just about are they doing their responsibilities right? And I would say up until this point, I would say that they've done very well considering we have nine injuries. So when you define that, can you go a little bit deeper around like in this system, like what is the expectation of someone like Colwell who I think it received maybe a fair bit of criticism during the first game in particular for playing as a left back. But I think you're kind of highlighting the fact that he's not really a left back. He is a center back who is shifting to the left as a part of the buildup that we have when we're in attack. And this is what he, or, you know, he's shifting more to like a left center back in this role. So like, what would his responsibility be or his assignment be, um, to help clarify for people, like what is he actually expected to do and why is that maybe challenging him in this you know, first series of starts under Mauricio Pochettino and at Chelsea? So interestingly, the three people at the back that we've got, the Sassi, Silva and uh, Colville, actually rank in, in very, very highly in terms of progressive passes, um, passing distance for outfielders. So uh, Thiago Silva is actually first uh, among the Premier League for distance. Uh, only Edison, even in goalkeepers, only Edison is somebody who's covered more progressive distance than him with his passes. Uh, De Sassi is seventh, Enzo Fernandez is ninth, and then Colville is 18th. So it just tells you about how Pochettino has recognized that he's got a lot of good ball-playing centre-backs who are able to offer great penetration against you know the first line. Even when they're in settled possession and close to the halfway line, they're able to find good passes. If you see the kind of... Um, 
line breaking passes that Colville was picking out for Chilwell in the first couple of games. It, it was extremely amazing to see. So Colville's role, I would say, is multifold. He is like you mentioned, when he's defending, he's a third centre-back. So he obviously has to function as a centre-back, making sure that he's guarding against transition. We all know that he's extremely quick. He's also somebody who likes to stand off a little bit. So he's reading people's intentions. Um, didn't do very well on that goal that we conceded um, from Desasi's mistake. But again, this is him learning and taking on a lot of experience in, over the past year. So that will improve. But he's basically done that role as a centre-back. And there were times against the West Ham game where he was, uh, he left the centre-back position and he was almost at left midfield. So he was um, almost a defensive midfielder. He was waiting for the ball to, to come loose and basically win the ball back and recycle it so we could keep the pressure on. And there were, I think, two instances which I logged um, where Colville basically overlapped on the left-hand side, almost like a, a left-back would. So and he crossed also inside the box, but I don't think it made it. It went out for the corner. But that's the role that has been that has been asked of him. And Kukureya has also done something similar against Potter. Like when we were, play, we were playing under Potter, he was tasked with doing this exact same responsibility. But I think Colville's a safer bet for obvious reasons. Uh, it's a difficult role to play. It's something that we've seen Pochettino's system do. I think there are demands from players to do multiple roles. Kaiseiro will have multiple roles. Enzo will have multiple roles. The number 10 is not a number 10. He's like Kani Chukwumeka, a box-to-box midfielder. So he sometimes has to be an 8, sometimes has to be a 6. You know, he has to help in build-up. So he's got multiple responsibilities as well. So what we've basically seen is a 4-2-3-1, but it's the namesake. And, And there are players playing multiple roles and allowing different solutions in-game, which I think is is my interpretation of what Pochettino wants to do. Well, and, and maybe just to lastly summarize on the learnings for the Liverpool match is we saw that it was a midfield two combo, effectively, of Enzo and Gallagher basically alternating where they were in terms of the, the pivot switch that they were offering. One was further forward, one was further back, and they were alternating throughout the match. But then you had the Chukwameka and, I guess, Mudrik offering because of the, the that, you know, Mudrik coming in on halftime, where they were supporting the attacking movements that Enzo and Gallagher were getting into. And I, I think that was interesting. We know that, you know, maybe as we talk about the, uh, the other matches shortly, that we are less likely to see the the two or the pairing necessarily of like just Enzo and Gallagher plus some supporting cast. And it's going to evolve, particularly as we've seen Caicedo, Enzo and Gallagher working as a, as a trio in the most recent match. Yeah, I think the Liverpool game was an interesting starting point because we didn't have Caicedo. So it, it was again Pochettino working with what he had. And um, interestingly, it was, I think, Enzo playing on the right-hand side in that game. And I mean, he's just so good that he can pick out angles even from the right-hand side. I I do insist that the left-hand side is, I think, where he prefers because he pulls out some incredible through balls with the outside of his foot. He's able to sort of um, look for diagonal switches on the right-hand side first time. I think those things, he, he is not very inclined to look on the right. But on the left, he's almost very switched on to what is happening. But even on the right-hand side against Liverpool, it was arguably a man-of-the-match performance. But it was, again, Gallagher tasked with being the deepest midfielder, which we all know he doesn't like. And uh, struggled a little bit, a little bit. But other than that, he, again, grew into the game, looked very, very solid by the end. But as soon as we had Caicedo, I think that the idea, again, evolved. And we saw, again, a positional shift. Um, and it, it's, again, like, again, we saw against Luton, and we didn't have Chukwameka, and we didn't have anybody in that attacking midfield role. We basically didn't see a number 10 as such. We saw Gallagher with a more different interpretation. I would say it was almost a midfield three at times where you had Enzo who had almost an eight role where he was just free roaming and trying to find pockets. You had Caicedo as the deepest midfielder, almost as a number six. And then Gallagher was playing almost a box-to-box role on the right-hand side. And again, Pochettino knows that like there are some defensive midfielders who like to orchestrate and have more space. Like sometimes people don't like playing in a double pivot because if you're an orchestrator, you have somebody who's occupying half the pitch and you want to be able to create those angles, receive, and then, 
you know, try to find players in front. And I think he's given that freedom to Enzo, saying that Caicedo and Gallagher will take care of those responsibilities. Your job is to just find the space behind the first or the second line, receive, turn, and then play. And a lot of the balls that he delivered to Sterling and Jackson have been just that. And it's that added level of freedom that he's given Enzo. I think the identification there of saying, no, he's not somebody who has to be given a defined role. He needs a little more freedom. He's got the intelligence to escape pressure. I think that's what has been a hallmark for me. And as we see that midfield partnership, like I said, evolve, I think that will remain common. It'll be Kaisero and Gallagher providing the base and Enzo basically being an 8-10, he's just given the freedom to be where he wants to be. At times, he's making runs into the box, which we didn't see last season. He's also looking lighter and fitter, so he's able to make those sprints quickly into the box. Uh, he also hit the post, I think, against Luton in a counter-attack, which was, again, yep. something we didn't see last season. So, you know, those positions that he's taking up are all results from the positional freedom that he has. And I think that's something definitely that we need to watch out for. We were talking about us not getting enough goals from midfield. Gallagher has got eight goals and four assists, I think, at Crystal Palace from a similar position, like a 6-8 B2B. And uh, Enzo's had, you know, a season at River Plate where he, I think, got about eight or ten goals in, in the League Cup or something. So there are goals there. And I think giving that level of freedom to two midfielders is, is again, him trying to explore how, how much he can push these two guys to get uh, into the box and get us some goals. Well, we're going to talk about the other two matches, West Ham and Luton, in just a moment. We're going to take a very quick ad break, and when we get back, all about the other two matches before getting into your listener questions. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. There is no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. One of the things I love about Indeed is that they make hiring all in one place. It's easy because, well, candidates you invite are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in the search. When you get one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with a quality candidate, it makes it go faster. And when you're looking to hire, the quicker you get the right person in the role, the better. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire sports. That offer is good for a limited time. So claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com forward slash Blue Wire Sports. Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire Sports and support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com forward slash Blue Wire Sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Sam. So I think the maybe kind of shorter synopsis, because I don't think we want to force anybody to relive the defeat to West Ham too much. But I think there were a couple of interesting things. One was that we, this showed, I think, the lack of just an ability to have shots and convert shots with a very high amount of possession that we were able to, with the three center backs, do a, a pretty solid job in the air, which is at, you know, on set pieces, which is where Chelsea maybe have struggled previously outside of adding cheat code James Ward-Prowse to the situation, which made it, you know, I think a little unfair. Let's just be fair. And then I think the other thing that we talked about on the main pod when we were breaking it down is just the, the penalty miss that Enzo had in terms of, you know, really could have completely changed the tide of that game for Chelsea. So why don't you pick one or two of those that you want to jump into a little bit more further? Yeah, I think it, it is a bit unfair for us to to criticize the West Ham defeat. I think we did play very well in the first half. I mean, 80% possession and people say, you know, the game isn't won on possession. But it was the kind of possession that frustrated West Ham. You could see Antonio screaming at people to go and press, but West Ham just didn't know what to do. But then you saw the kind of block that they put up. First, they were like at 5-4-1 and then they went to 5-5-0. So even the striker was in midfield and they covered every single thing from, from narrow zones to the wide zones. And we just couldn't put crosses into the box because they had three huge centre-backs and we couldn't get close for shots because, you know, all of their midfielders work hard and even the white guys who are, who are attackers like Bowen, um, you know, they basically also are very industrious. So we couldn't get close. And then when you look at the Brighton result, which was far worse than what happened to us, um, you know, I, I think it's just a, a fair reflection of how difficult it is to break them down when they're playing that kind of a block. So um, I would say that it's it's an aberration if the game state at that point 
Enzo converts that penalty, I, I definitely think we would have gone on to win it. You know, they would have been more open. They would have tried to play more expansive and, and we would have picked them apart. So I think it was just an unfair um, reflection of the game. Uh, well done to West Ham and no, no doubts about it. But uh, we could have won it and we didn't. So points dropped. Yeah, and I think the other point is just the... I'm going to die on this hill that I would prefer a, at this point, a striker or someone who takes a very powerful dead ball shot from the penalty spot as the team's designated penalty taker. We we, we moved off from Jorginho. <laughs> if you want to find out who that is, please read this week's uh, London's Blue Podcast Dispatch. I think I've talked about who my preference is for that role. Penalty taker, goals, assists, uh, pretty lively, good age. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think I have the right name in mind. But uh, yeah, the money is the money is going to be expensive. So I don't know if you're going to spend it. But like you mentioned, I think that if we do get an upgrade in in that central attacking midfield position, somebody who also is able to play on the wing, then he has to be able to take penalties. He has to be able to score, and he has to be able to take at least. I would say at least three shots a game uh, with, I would say, an accuracy of about 35-40%. I'm right there with you. All of that sounds amazing to me. Let's get it done. We've, we've only got, you know, what, 72 hours left in the transfer window? So, you know, oh t- time's a ticking, uh, Paul and Lawrence. So let's, uh, let's get it figured out. When it comes to the Luton match, which was the first one of the season, it was a clean sheet from Chelsea, it involved multiple goals. It felt like a panacea for everything that went wrong last season, that it felt like it really washed away, particularly being at home at Stanford Bridge. You saw all the positive messages and notes from supporters who were at the ground that this was the showing that they've been waiting for, a return to what I would just call dominant football that Chelsea should be able to to offer. And while Luton did have moments in the game, they really were there for the taking, and Chelsea just got it done, even with Nico having, like, a, a shot in the first minute, right? Like, Chelsea were there. They were ready to go, even deficient in some positions in terms of first-choice players being out to injury or not fully up to speed yet. I mean, this was, I think, the most comprehensive we've seen. And, like, this, I think is why maybe the glass is feeling fuller for people right now because of this result. And you know, I think people will couch it because it is against Luton. But at this point, I think you're also looking for just can this team play together? Can they stitch things together appropriately? And will these combinations that Pochettino has built up with the players he has actually produce the end outcomes we're looking for? And I think this is the first time we, we saw it end-to-end in a full 90-minute performance. Yeah, absolutely. I think somebody told me that this was the highest XG we have accumulated since the 6-0 win against Southampton. So that was pretty encouraging to hear. Um, I think individual performances most of all just stood out. Jackson had like five shots on the day, which is his the best that he's taken in his career since the 2021 season. I mean, we've had data until then when he was playing in the second division for VRL second club, but uh, five shots is the maximum he's ever had. And and he basically did that tally, got a goal. Sterling has been absolutely incredible uh, since the West Ham game. I mean, Liverpool, he showed glimpses, but West Ham, he came alive. Should have had uh, assists, should have had goals. And I think he just looks a different player altogether. We all knew that in preseason, he, he was looking better defensively. He was working very hard, but on the ball, it was just off. He wasn't making the right decisions. He's still a little rusty now, but Pochettino made a comment, you know, saying about, like Sterling had this interview where he talked about um, speaking to Pochettino before season, preseason started and saying that, you know, I had to play seven different positions um, and then I wasn't very happy playing with my back to goal. And it was just switching a lot of positions over and over again, not making any of those organic relationships. So, um, Poch just said, you know, it doesn't matter if you play left, right or center. It just, you have to be aggressive. And m- once you do that, you're unstoppable. And I think that's exactly what he wanted to hear. And we've seen Sterling, I would say from his Liverpool days, it, he just looks absolutely electric. He looks like he's gone backwards in time. Like Silva had some of that elixir or serum that Silva has been drinking for the last couple of years. And he's just looked rejuvenated. Absolutely amazing. So hopefully that, that will continue. 
But I think the most important thing was our first glimpse of um, what might be a first choice midfield going forward, at least until January, when we have Chipumeka and uh, Nkunku back. Um, it was just, I was expecting Gallagher to be the furthest forward and Enzo to be slightly behind and orchestrating from deep. But it turned out it, it was almost like a six with two eights. Uh, Gallagher being a little more conservative, like I said, a box-to-box midfielder kind of position. But uh, it was Enzo's freedom and and the amount of times he was allowed to go near the box and cause havoc, which was, which was pretty encouraging to see. I think Poch trusts him to be a creative and a goal threat. And I think sooner rather than later, we will see him notch up, you know, his first Chelsea goal. So hopefully that comes next game. Well, f- fingers crossed that, that absolutely does because it would be very, very great to see. I think as we advance, we had a couple of questions. Uh, Sashit asking the question just around looking at how these three games have manifested and the results that we've achieved and the way that the performances have looked. Has this where we where will we finish in the Premier League? And maybe the better way to frame this, Sam, is just like where was your expectation at the end of preseason, and where is your expectation now? Has it gone up or has it gone down in terms of where you think Chelsea can finish the season in the Premier League? I think it's remained consistent. I was of the impression that we would finish around top six, uh, hopefully sixth or fifth, fifth if we get Champions League. Hopefully, so. Um, I would say around top six, but fifth or six should be the bare minimum, in my opinion. Yeah, you're not you're not budging on maybe even a little upward momentum on the top four, considering what you've seen of some of the other sides. No, for certain. I think uh, we we need a slightly bigger sample size. We've only seen um, again. I, I'm also taking into consideration that we don't have a full strength squad, um, but it's just I think. Me being a little cautious, uh, I've always been like that, but it's just nine injuries and a festive run to come. And we have we have that brutal fixture run, I think, uh, somewhere in October, we'll be playing uh, four or five of the top six back to back. I think that spell sort of defines where we finish. Um, but it's also encouraging that we've actually looked very good against Liverpool, considering we, we do look best when we are in transition and we're running into space behind. So... Um, it is going to be, I think, one of the toughest, uh, toughest top four races of all time. But uh, all of that into consideration, I would say fifth or sixth would be a pretty good achievement for Pochettino in his debut season. And and hopefully if we get fifth, then, then we hit Champions League. I think I will assess this on the pod we do after the transfer window completes. And we know exactly who we've brought in from an attacking perspective, if that does end up reaching the heights of the big name that is currently being... It's not even actual, an actual big name. It is a big name is the filler for who the player is or may be, considering that Fabrizio and others are now touting that about as that Chelsea are looking to do something huge, something splashy at the very end of the window here. So uh, I'm going to say that I'll, I'll stay within I think the range that you have of like top six I think is absolutely where Chelsea will be this year based upon even looking at some of the other squads that just don't feel fully baked even as a part of that current top six mm-hmm. I do think that we could push for a top four and even maybe a, a higher performance uh, within that top four based upon where where we where we reinforce and how quickly we can get some players back from injury if we can gel quick enough i think we are going to be very very tough to deal with so this is factoring in that we sign somebody for that vacant attacking midfield position correct yes okay that's fair enough i think i think that's a very um accurate assumption to make i think if that happens then i would i would be a little more optimistic and say fourth or fifth depending on who that signing is i have like i sure. said the the guy who's in the dispatch i'm not going to mention but i think somebody like an anton griezmann would have been absolutely sensational if he wasn't on astronomical wages, then he wasn't as old as he is. But um, if you can do a deal there, uh, definitely do it. Don't go for the other Atletico attacker. Uh, go for the one that I just mentioned. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Zarli asking one question, which is, what differences have you noticed in Pacha's ta- tactics between these first three matches and tenure at Spurs? And are there, are there anything that he seems to be doing better or worse? I feel like 
Sam, that we're seeing the same high intensity, the same desire to win the ball, the same desire to play uh, centrally, the way to use the the fullbacks and kind of get them to uh, push in on the diagonal to get things moving, to create space. I feel like a lot of the things that he he did do at Spurs we're seeing manifest early on. But are there other things that you would want to point out? I think uh, it, this is sort of, I think, his... Um, 2.0 interpretation of his Tottenham project. I think a lot of the base is similar. The 4-2-3-1 is the same. Then you've got this asymmetrical sort of role in in even the pivots where one is tasked with being the more progressive midfielder, the other being the halfback. I think we've seen that with the interpretation of Enzo and Caicedo. And if you want to sort of switch it around, Gallagher and Caicedo. So I think those things have remained the same. What I feel is the major difference is that in build-up he switched up a little bit I think the biggest concern I was I had at before preseason was how well does he cope uh, with sides that are better at pressing and winning the ball back in build-up and how well does he cope with you know pressing sides that are better at build-up because the amount of teams that now have learned to play out from the back compared to the teams that were there when he was at Spurs have increased manifold. So I, I thought that there would be some kind of disparity there, but he's switched that up. The way that we are pressing is smarter. I also think that he's reduced a little bit of the intensity. Uh, Spurs could at some times uh, just look absolutely chaotic with, with the localized press that they have. What we're trying to do is press high, yes, but as soon as we think that it's not going to happen, we retreat. And we immediately go into low block and we try to invite the other team in so we get more space to attack. And I think it's happening quicker for us. So he's definitely noticed that that move allows us to conserve more energy and it gives you a little more time to attack. So um, I think that's the major change. But overall, I would say just an interpretation that he's worked on and improved. We are also a lot more narrower than than Spurs were. Uh, at, I mean, mm-hmm. at times... Uh, in preseason, we we just had like nine or ten players on the left hand side of the pitch trying to press and win the ball back. So we are, I would say, a little more vulnerable to switches and and to runners, you know, on on the furthest side, on the underloaded side. But uh, I think that's a consequence of him trying to win the ball back better, more efficiently. So in some ways we are better, and in some ways we are worse than than he was at Spurs. All right, so with that said, we are going to take our very last ad break. When we come back, it's all of your listener questions. It's getting into the details of what you wanted to know about, and we will get answers directly from Sam as to what he's thinking about things like have we solved problems around shooting for last year? I think, spoiler, not necessarily. Uh, what we go what do we go do with Gallagher? Maybe what some of the loans have looked like that Chelsea have set up and many, many more questions. So stay tuned. and We'll be right back. Are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce NordVPN. If you're bored of U.S. streaming services, why not take it for a spin in the U.K.? Using NordVPN and at the click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. You know, like the name of the podcast to get a huge discount off of your NordVPN plan plus one additional months for free. It's completely risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. We all love to binge, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. Threat protection, they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there is literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll send you a refund and you can pretend the entire situation never happened, just like Chelsea's 2022-2023 season. Check out my link at nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue to get your subscription started today. nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. All right, Sam. So our first question from Hayasaka asking, just we weren't particularly creative or nor clinical last year. 
how have we solved this problem so far this year with either transfers or play style? And I think I would just lead in saying that Chelsea were able to achieve a 50% shot on target rate, eight total shots on target out of 19 total against Luton. We were nowhere near as clinical in our match against West Ham where we lost when we had uh, four shots on 17 total on target on total shots of 17, so about 23.5%. And then against Liverpool, it was 40%. So we had 10 total, top, 10 total shots with four on target. So seemingly Chelsea are in the position where we're still a bit of a mixed bag. The jury's still out. But I think the real prescription here is more shots and more shots on target. And Chelsea aren't necessarily the finished article yet when it comes to either. Yeah, I would I would definitely say so. I think uh, at one point in time, we had nine big chances and we missed, I think, eight of them or something similar to those numbers. So it did look like a throwback to last season. And and we did point out that in terms of the forwards that we have, none of them are established finishers. Uh, Mudrik definitely isn't. Chukwameka, again, somebody who's just growing into the role. Nico Jackson is a wide man, and uh, he had a very good purple patch at the end of the season, but uh, he's still very raw. I think you could see that he's uh, somewhere caught between trying to execute tactical instructions. And I think he was told by Pochettino to shoot on site. And I don't know which game it was that I was watching back. I, I think it was Luton where um, he got a shot straight from kickoff. You know, we basically hoofed it long and he chased it down and tried to get a shot either himself or for Sterling. So at the entire point was try to get as many shots as you can because in the first couple of games, we were mid-table for, for quantity and quality. And I think that's something that has to improve uh, and will improve. It's just trying to figure out whether those shots are going to come through, you know, counter-pressing and winning the ball back in, in good positions and then immediately because now we have an upgraded front line in terms of speed and in terms of just getting shots away, I think that will improve. But it's also, I think, if you want pure output, then we will have to improve our finishing, which I think is still some way below being Premier League top four standard. But I think that's what Pochettino is betting on and that will improve as we go on. But um, I think I think it's just the quality of of pressing it's the quality of attackers that we have that are able to create shots for themselves and and the speed at which we're able to to break away i think that will be decisive this time around and then we weren't last time around got it so the question from hokey karma coming in is gallagher really someone that we can want to let go or is it only if you way overpay, you can get him. And I feel like this is another example of we've seen Pochettino put together some good press comments. He has played Gallagher in almost a maximum number of minutes allotted. Even, you know, with new players coming in, it feels like Gallagher has proven himself to be a integral part of Pochettino's philosophy being enacted on the pitch and ultimately, you know, someone who is going to stick around for the season. So then you know that I was on the Gallagher train before a lot of people. I mean, you were all on it with me, but um, it's just, I think that he's he's come to a point where we've looked past his performances under Tuchel, where he made quite a lot of errors in possession and then he basically, you know, has cleaned up all of those under Pochettino. If you notice the subtle details, he's also shown improvements. He's receiving with both feet. His body position is is much better than it used to be. He doesn't look as flat-footed when he's receiving in difficult positions. He's also more willing. I think that's the major differentiator. At some point in time when he was playing under Tuchel, he just did not want to receive the ball like Jorginho did, you know, from receiving from the centre-backs, turning and then delivering into space or or cutting lines with his passing. And I think that's what Gallagher has sort of added to his repertoire. It just, it's come to a point where I rate him extremely highly, yes. But I also know that there is a chance that we can upgrade on him if uh, the right player is available. So he is an excellent squad player. He's somebody who's exceptional to keep around. But if the choice is between an Nkunku, um, a Kani Chukwumeka, which this regime bought for, for 20 million and who basically scored that goal before he got injured um, and has been preferred in that role, then if an offer comes in, do you sell? I would say if it's stupid money, where somewhere around 70 million, 65, 70 million, I would say yes. Because I think for that amount of price, you can probably upgrade on Gallagher. You can do it. But I would, at this point in time, with the injuries, 
um, with everything that's happening, I would say keep him. And I don't think anybody is going to go as far as to pay 65, 74 Gallagher. So my verdict would basically be to keep him. He's improving. Um, and I think that especially in the setup that that Pochettino has now found as the box-to-box midfielder who's able to shunt and do everything between both boxes, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody like him. It's, it's extremely difficult to find a guy with his intensity, to find somebody with his level of off-the-ball work, his, his pressing triggers, his intelligence. It's very, very tough. And people always look at the on-the-ball actions, but everything that he does in, in the other 88 minutes, it counts for so, so much. So I would say that uh, unless a ridiculous offer comes, don't consider it and, and keep him. I, I think he's going to be important. It feels like someone who is going to, if he stays through the end of the window, will likely end up with some type of contract extension and would likely, in under a single year working with Mauricio Pochettino, be worth even more than he is worth right now to a Premier League side. So I feel like if you are even just looking at it from a financial sense and not necessarily what he adds in terms of value to the squad and the way that Pochettino's plan can be enacted, it feels like selling him today is selling him at a discount. And that would be something I would also add is just maybe a little bit of an additional thought on it. Sam, as we round out, last question, Chelsea Football Logic asking what your thoughts are on the Andre Santos loan to Nottingham Forest. Um, also, I had asked the second question around, is he better than Lavia or Ugo Chukwu? I think that's maybe an unfair question to ask today because Andre Santos has not played in European football as of yet. Uh, Lavia has played, you know, within the Premier League. Ugo Chukwu has played, you know, within the European kind of top tier structure. So I, I don't want to do that yet. I would say that's a question we can park for a few months from now when maybe we're doing something in December and they've hopefully all had an opportunity to play and we could start to make some true comparisons. But just a thought on the Santos loan, particularly with, you know, maybe some of the acquisitions that Forrest have made, it, it, it does feel a little more questionable and maybe just a a victim of the fact that Chelsea are in this situation with Hakim Ziyech being on a loan, with Lewis Hall being on a loan, with Lukaku, who just arrived, with the Roma deal being on a loan, that we might have been better off getting him alone into a top European side, but because of the way that some of these deal structures had to be put together for troublesome players, uh, we do have a couple players who maybe have lost out on the ideal loan um, or finding, you know, maybe getting getting on a loan earlier to be fully embedded in the side at the start of the season and not having to catch up to everyone else. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think the tweet refers to uh, a tweet that I put out um, saying that I believe Lavia is um, not superior to Andre Santos because um, I put out an impulsive tweet about the Nottingham Forest loan. I, I do believe that we should be thinking carefully about where we want to send him because he he genuinely is one of the most exciting players, young players that I've seen in, in a long, long time. And it doesn't matter if it's the Brazilian league and if it was the second division. It was just uh, his performances, even on the international circuit for the Brazil youth teams. It just something about him just clicks. He's mentally years ahead of the age that he's supposed to be. He's extremely well-rounded. I would say that his characteristics are are unique to him. He's able to, to be a first-phase orchestrator. He's able to play a box-to-box role. He's also able to crash the box and give you headers. It's something that I would say Lavia and Ugochuku can't do. You know, he's. I wanted to say that he's more well-rounded than both those players. I say that Lavia has clearly well-defined defensive weaknesses. And I believe some of them won't go away. It's, you know, I, I don't think that they can be worked on. But I do think that he gets better in a in a very good system. And I do think technically receiving in tight spaces, like we said, in the Premier League, he's tried, tested, and already showing world-class potential. So it's it's not a matter of whether one's better than the other. But my entire debate around this was, if Lavia costs you 60 million and if Andre Santos comes for 20 million and if both start competing for the same spot, are you going to play the 20 million guy if he performs better than your 60 million one? And my argument was no, because you're always going to look out for your more expensive asset. You know, and that's why I was against the Lavia deal. If it was for around 35, 40 million, which I think his value is good for, 
I would have been absolutely on on point with it. But I think that by paying what we paid for him, and is we are actually paying for the player that we envision he will become. So uh, it's an unfair thing to do to both Ugochuku and and Andre Santos, where. If it was between developing one player or the other, then then you had to send the less expensive player on loan, and which is what has happened to Andre Santos. So, I hope I am wrong about this, and I hope that Steve Cooper does us a huge favor and gives him 15-20 minutes. I've talked to a couple of Nottingham Forest fans, and they tell me that um, the young midfielder or El Mangala has been a little um, inconsistent, and uh, they're also selling Remo uh, Froiler to to Bologna, I think. So they're effectively going to have maybe two, three central midfielders if if everything goes right. And if they don't get Ndidi or Yusuf Fofana. So hopefully he will get minutes. Uh, but it's just, it's a huge ask to break into a senior side at that age in the Premier League. Colville did it first in the championship, which I think would have been a good option. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my main gripe. I, I don't want to compare, but I would say that I am a little disenchanted right now. I will absolutely take everything back and and happily be quiet if he gets the minutes that he deserves. Yeah, so hopefully we'll we'll clip this, we'll send it over to Cooper's people, and he'll just do the right thing and get Andre Santos a fair number of minutes this season. But uh, until then, that is what we're going to have to hope for. But hopefully you enjoyed this episode. It's a little bit of a different one that we've put together here, taking a look at the early days of the Pochettino era at Chelsea. The aura is strong, as we mentioned in our match review against Luton, and it's exciting times. So... Look forward to the end of the transfer window. Look forward to more updates from Sam and myself and others on the podcast as we look to get you and keep you informed about what's going on, all things Chelsea. And Sam, as you make a little bit of a trip into Europe in the coming days, uh, I think on behalf of all our listeners, I want to wish you a very safe bit of travel. Thank you so much, Dan. I mean, uh, it, it's it's exciting definitely to go and, and explore Europe for the first time, also hoping to catch a couple of games in Austria and in Czech Republic. So that'll be a good experience and hopefully do some nice scouting while I'm there and then bring some more talents for uh, for the Bowley Consortium. Working for free. How nice. Uh, I'm sure Blue Clow would take any more of your recommendations. It's not like they haven't taken one or two before. At least that's what we assume. But that's going to do it for this episode, listeners. Thank you so much again for supporting the podcast and listening. And until next time, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.